Well, tonight we're going to be taking a look at the science that supports a young Earth, but we're going to be taking a look at the simple, easy to understand things. This is not complicated. This is not going to be over your head at all. Now, we do have today over 350 scientific science arguments to prove that the Earth, the galaxy, solar system, universe are, in fact, only a few thousand years old. Remember that evolutionists do not have even one scientific proof that is old. They have arguments to deceive you into believing it's old, but they have not one proof that it is old. Because if they had one unarguable proof, we would have to agree with them. But we don't, because they don't. Hello? Now, tomorrow night, we're going to look at the theology of this, that you cannot accept any old earth view theologically. We're going to talk about that tomorrow night. Tonight, we're going to do why I believe in a young creation, looking at the science of a young earth. Tomorrow, the theology. Now, uh, I spoke about marriage, the creation view of marriage last night. And uh, ladies, I hope you enjoyed that. Jeff? <laughs> but I, I, ladies, I do hope that you enjoyed that. And, to, you know, I, I did that message to really help you out. I hope that you did enjoy it. And we're going to do a little something for you tonight, too. So, ladies, I want you to help me, okay? Okay? That's better. Well, in talking about the age of the earth and looking at some of the simple science and so forth, I want you to think about this. Is there anything about a rock that will tell you how old it is? Is there anything about the size, feel, shape, smell, taste, weight, specific gravity, chemical composition, density? Is there anything about a rock that will tell you how old it is? The answer, of course, is no. There is nothing about a rock that will tell you how old it is. Think with me. I can go outside right now, pick up any rock I choose to. I can claim any age I want to for it. You may disagree with me, but you cannot scientifically prove that I'm wrong. Did you hear that? I can pick up a rock, claim any age I want to for it. You may disagree with me, but you cannot scientifically prove that I'm wrong. I mean, think with me for just a moment. When you pick up rocks, do they come with little white strings, little white tags attached, saying I'm 10 million years old and signed by a scientist who was there at the time? Excuse me? Come on, folks, the correct response tonight will be, not a chance. So could you do that? Not a chance. I was once asked to write an article for a Christian magazine, uh, and, and sometimes when you're asked to write articles, they'll say, here's the title, please write the article. Sometimes they say, pick your own title, write your own article. On this particular occasion, I was asked to write an article. They gave me the title of the article. The title was to be, How Do You Date a Rock? And my first response was, first, you have to ask her. <laughs> Hello? I mean, think about it for just a moment. We're taking a look at, are the Earth and the universe... Oh, by the way, that's a rock we found not too long ago. When we found it, did it come with a little white string, a little white tag attached? No? Then how do you know how old it is? Hello? If it's possible to turn down those spotlights on this, it's really washing out the screen, and people really need to see this, if possible. Thank you. But this Earth and the universe behind it, are the Earth and the universe really billions of years old, as evolutionists claim? Remember that evolutionists claim that the Earth is four and a half to five billion years old, and they, of course, claim the universe is many billions of years older than that. What we're looking at tonight is, are they billions of years old, or are they, in fact, young? Now, I know what's going to happen when you think about this. Now, is the Earth old? Did it all start with a Big Bang? Now, all of you have heard about this thing called the Big Bang. Is that correct? I have one simple logical question to ask you. You don't have to know anything about science to answer this question. When was the last time you saw an explosion construct a building? I'm sorry, was that too fast for some of y'all? Come on, what's the last time you saw an explosion construct a building? Never. And you never will, is that correct? Because explosions destruct, they do not construct, is that correct? The whole concept of the Big Bang, and there's not one Big Bang theory, there were many different Big Bang theories, but they were all illogical, unreasonable, uh, unscientific. But evolutionists promoted it anyway, because otherwise there had to be a God. Hello? 
But recently, evolutionists have, in fact, disproven the Big Bang themselves. They no longer believe it. It's not widely accepted anymore. If you don't believe it, there's an article on my website you can go and read for free where I quote evolutionists who simply have given it up. But uh, did it all start with this Big Bang? And is the Earth, the universe, is it billions of years old? Is the universe, in fact, 13.82 billion years old? Not a chance. A very good response. Uh, I want you to notice something. The more we learn, the older it gets, because a few years ago they said it was 13.7 billion years old, but then recently they changed that to 13.82 billion years old. I love adding the two. You know why they put the two on there, don't you? To make it sound like they'd measured it. Hello? But is it 13.82 billion years old? Or can you really trust the Bible about the whole thing being created, whole, complete, perfect, only about 6,000 years ago? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I know what happens when you say to somebody, I believe in a young earth, a young universe. I know because I have to deal with it every single day of my life. When you say to somebody, I believe it's only 6,000 years old, I believe the earth and the universe are young, I know what's going to happen. They're going to respond and say, but wait. But wait, you can't be serious. And then they will say, doesn't it have to be old? Because. Now, depending upon the person you're talking to, depending upon their age, their education, experience, uh, depending upon a wide variety of things, they are going to give you a litany, a list of the various reasons why they think it's old. Now, that list may be longer, shorter, may contain some of the items I'm about to share with you, maybe others. But they're going to respond and say, doesn't it have to be old? Because. Doesn't it take millions and billions of years for rocks to form? What about diamonds and other gemstones to form? Doesn't that take a long time? What about stalactites and stalagmites? Don't they take millions of years to form? Or what about the polar ice caps? Evolutionists will say the polar ice caps are millions of years old. But is that true? We're going to take a look tonight. Or what about thousands of feet of sedimentary rock layers to form? What about uh, deep canyons to be cut into rock layers? Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we do a presentation on Mount St. Helens. I did it for the church many years ago. But on March the 19th of 1982, we saw a canyon, 140th the size of the Grand Canyon, cut in one day. It doesn't take millions of years to get deep canyons. And uh, what about dinosaur fossils? Now, I mentioned that I grew up in the paleontology laboratories at the University of California, Berkeley. And they taught me and they taught you in public school, did they not? It takes millions and millions of years to get a fossil. Is that correct? That's, that's what they taught you, right? But it's not true. We're going to show that tonight. And, of course, they'll talk about coal. Doesn't it take millions of years for coal to form? Evolutionists will tell you that most of the coal in the world came from the Carboniferous period. 300 to 360 million supposed years ago, called the Mississippian and Pennsylvanian eras. And they say that takes millions of years, but is it true? Of course, the same thing is true with wood to fossilize. Perhaps some of you have been to fossilized forests out west and so forth. And they say it takes, again, millions of years for wood to fossilize that way. But regardless of who you're talking to, regardless of whether the list is longer, shorter, whether it has these items or others, there is one item that almost every single one of them will say doesn't take millions and billions of years for light to reach us from distant stars and distant galaxies. They think that one's a killer. The fact of the matter, it doesn't. And we're going to take a look at that tonight. You see, I say it all has to be young, and I say it all has to be young because. Now again, we have over 350. I'm just going to share a few tonight. But uh, I mentioned, I uh, taught on Creation's View of Marriage last night, and I did that, ladies. I really hope you enjoyed it. Um, but I did say that I wanted to do something for you tonight, because on this presentation, now we have another DVD full of arguments, but on this particular presentation, I always like to start with something for the ladies. So ladies, um, I am really here to help you tonight. Ladies? Oh, that's better. Now, ladies, how many of you like... The bling. 
So, so, some of you apparently aren't familiar with the modern slang. The word bling means how many of you like the sparkling gemstones? So let me ask that question again. Ladies, how many of you like the bling? Now, I'm here to help you. Let's take a little look. That's a right pretty rock. Would you agree? Now, that's a natural piece of opal mined by hand in Australia. I, ladies, I think you'll agree. That's a right pretty rock. Would you agree? However, this is not a man-made opal. This is a man-grown opal. And that opal was grown in that jar right there. Do I have your attention, ladies? Men, I hope you're paying attention, too, because the ladies will be. Hello? You know, I, it's funny. Usually when I say in that bottle right there, I hear a question from the audience. What's the formula? Well, let's talk about this. Does it take millions of years for gemstones uh, like opals or diamonds to form? And what about gold? Goodness only knows. You hear a lot about gold these days, right? It's just ubiquitous everywhere. But let's take a little look. Now, this is another natural opal from Australia mined by hand. This, again, is a man-grown opal. It was grown in that jar right there. You can actually see it growing in the lens right here. And it only took three months. Now, ladies, how many of you actually have opal jewelry? My goodness, well, I have about 30 hands raised, but I noticed a lot of ladies didn't raise their hands. Men, I hope you were noticing which ones didn't. <laughs> Come on, Valentine's Day is coming. Birthdays, anniversaries, Christmas is not that far away again. Um, but, but think with me, it only took three months. But evolution says it takes millions and millions of years. By the way, those of you that have opal jewelry, I assure you it's real, it's natural. This is an experiment done by a Christian creation-believing scientist in Australia. He doesn't grow these and then sell them on the open market, so yours is natural, etc. But it proves it doesn't take millions of years to get an opal. Is that right? Now, see, you forgot your line, didn't you? Come on. Not a chance. Well, maybe opals are not your thing. Now, ladies, how about this rock? Would you be interested in that? Oh, come on, ladies. That's a nice rock. That is the Hope Diamond in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian, the world's largest blue diamond. That is a nice rock. Now, evolutionists will tell you it takes millions of years to get diamonds forming deep in the ground, that they come slowly to the surface. And, of course, when you go into the stores, they romance the stone. They say, you know, this thing is 10 million years old, which is why you're paying the price you're paying. Is that correct? Oh, no, it is correct. That one is. I, <laughs> I, got news, I got news for you. They do romance the stone and so forth. Um, but, but let's talk about, does it really take millions of years to get uh, a diamond? Now, first of all, if you simply think about it, you know it's not true, because if you simply sit there and think about it for a moment, you know that since 1953, we've been making diamonds. Now, they're not gem quality diamonds, they're industrial grade diamonds. When you see people cutting concrete and asphalt with wheels, they're covered with man-made diamonds. Now they are real diamonds, they're not gem quality, but they're real diamonds, they're industrial grade diamonds, and we've known how to make them since 1953. So does it take millions of years to get a diamond? See folks, you get... Yeah. Not a chance, thank you. But, but how many of you do know that in 2003, we started making pure gem-quality diamonds in a matter of minutes? Please notice, I give the citations on many of the slides. This comes from Nature Magazine. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Nature Magazine is the single highest scientific journal in the world for evolutionists. It's printed in the United Kingdom. If you are an evolutionist, if you can get your article published in Nature Magazine, you have made the A list. Hello? I'm not worried about quoting from evolutionists. Evolutionists find lots of really good stuff, and they got a lot of money to find it. The problem is they have the wrong interpretation of it. Hello? So I'm not at all hesitant to quote from evolutionary sources, but this comes from February 2003. But the problem here was 
Though it only took some matter of minutes to make a pure gem-quality diamond, it took incredibly high temperatures and high pressures. But if you know anything about a scientist, you know that once we learn how to do something, the next question is, how do you do it cheaper, faster, or both? The very next year, in 2004, we started making pure gem-quality diamonds in only 12 hours at much lower temperatures and much lower pressures. Again, this comes from New Scientist, a totally evolutionary publication. It is such an evolutionary publication, I say it's 154% evolution. slow. But of course, well, now we're down to 12 hours, but, but much easier to do at lower temperatures, lower pressures, correct? But of course, if you know anything about a scientist, once we learn how to do something, the next question is, how do you do it cheaper, faster, or both, correct? And so in the year 2006, we started making pure gem-quality diamonds up to 10 carats in size in only 24 hours. Again, this comes from a very evolutionary source, um, but that's 2006. Now, I hope you find that interesting. I, I would tell you that you can go into a jewelry store in this area. I'm not here to promote any particular one. But man, I hope you're listening, because today you can go into a jewelry shop in this area, and you now have a choice between a natural diamond and a man-made diamond, and the man-made diamond will be 15 to 50% cheaper. Man, I hope you're listening, because I can assure you the women were. But of course, men, you also want to pay attention to this, because I'm not finished. In 2015, we found out how to make small diamonds with no pressure whatsoever, using nothing but an oxyacetylene torch, the kind you use in an auto body shop, and it only took eight hours. Hello? Oh, so does it take millions of years to get a diamond? Okay, we're going to have to rehearse this again. So everybody says, not a chance. Ready? Not a chance. There you go. Well, maybe, maybe we need to talk about gold. You know, you hear a lot about gold these days, don't you? I mean, it's just everywhere. Now, in the DVD that we have for sale, I actually have a, a way of, you can see that gold actually forms quickly in the ground. In that particular DVD, I talk about how the massive gold deposits at Lahur, Papua New Guinea, have been proven to have formed in only five hours. So that's good, but I have a newer piece of information for you tonight. We now know that gold actually forms in the ground instantaneously. Gold seams in the ground are made by earthquakes. You see, what happens is when an earthquake occurs, two pieces of land weighing millions of tons slip near each other, and they cause a lot of friction. Now, uh, what happens is there's gold in groundwater. And, and the heat, well, the water evaporates and it deposits the gold. And so gold is actually formed by earthquakes. Is that interesting? Well, maybe if that's not interesting, let me ask you all a question. Now, remember, there's no trick questions in any of my presentations. Um, how many of you would like to be worth $1 billion tomorrow? It's funny, only about 15% of you raised your hand. I usually get a better reaction than that, folks. I, I told you there are no trick questions in any of my presentations, I assure you. Uh, so how many of you would like to be worth $1 billion tomorrow? Well, I'm going to tell you how to do it. and I, I'm absolutely serious. Absolutely serious. I don't ask trick questions. You want to know how to do that? You raise a child, a grandchild, or a great-grandchild and can figure how to get the gold out of seawater. And every one of you would be worth a billion dollars tomorrow. There's enough gold dissolved in the Earth's oceans to make every one of you a billion dollars and more. But the problem is nobody has ever figured how to get it out. Hello? Well, with that in mind, let's continue with some of the other arguments. Now, what about stalactites and stalagmites? How many of you have ever been in a limestone cave? Stalactites, stalagmites, and so forth? Excellent. So maybe you've been to LaRay, Virginia, Mammoth, Kentucky, Carlsbad Caverns, New Mexico, some other cave system. Um, may I ask you a question? Uh, when you went to those caves, 
the guide took you to the entrance to the cave, and then they said, you know, it takes 10, 20 million years to the cave like this. Okay, folks, the correct response there was, ooh. So, get ready. You know, it takes 10, 20 million years to get a cave like this. And the second thing they say is, go touch that. It'll take a thousand years to grow back. You didn't see Tom's expression on his face, but I think he's heard that before. Anyways, let's take a look. Does it really take 10, 20 million years to get a cave like this? Now, ladies and gentlemen, oh, thank you. Thank you. You're good. Um, I have pictures from caves all over the world. Did you know that there's stalagmite caves inside the Rock of Gibraltar? Uh, I've got pictures of caves all over the world with, with stalactites, stalagmites. Have any of you ever seen two... Two stalagmite, stalactite form a, what's called a column. Have you ever seen columns? Now, ladies and gentlemen, the earth is constantly moving. The ground is constantly moving everywhere. Have you ever seen a column that formed and then was broken? No? Neither have I. That means they're all young. If the caves were old, Columns would have been broken. Hello? And, of course, I, uh, I do have hours of pictures of these things, but I just would like to show you two little examples. Now, number one, we're looking at do stalactites, stalagmites grow slowly, as evolutionists claim, or not. Now, this photograph is in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. The Yucatan Peninsula is honeycombed with limestone caves. And what you see here are two native Indian pots. Now, these are Mayan Indian pots, but we're left inside this cave. Now, we know that these pots are approximately 1,300 years old. It's not that difficult to figure it out. However, I wondered if you noticed in this photograph this stalagmite growing on top of the pot, and it took less than uh, 1,300 years to do it. Is that correct? Oh, so does it take millions of years to get a limestone cave? Ah, you guys are starting to get it now. <laughs> Proud of you. Let's take a look at one other one. This comes from Australia. Now, this is a man-made cave, although technically it's a tunnel. But this tunnel was dug into a basaltic hill in Australia in 1857. The tunnel is 160 feet long, but we know exactly when the tunnel was cut. Is that correct? The photograph you see here was taken in 1997. Here we see beautiful flow stones. Here we see curtain stalactites up here. And all of this formation only took 140 years. So does it take millions of years to get a limestone cave? Not a chance. And uh, what about the Antarctic ice caps? Now remember, the Arctic ice cap is just ice floating on water. But in the Antarctic, we've got a continent down there. Is that right? Now, Russian scientists at what is called the Vostok Hole. Uh, the word Vostok in Russian means east. That's all it means, just a direction, east. But Russian scientists at the Vostok Hole have drilled down through the polar ice cap in Antarctica, and they say that they have found 400,000 little layers in the ice. But French and Italian team of scientists at what's called Dome C say that they have found 800,000 little lines in the ice as they bored all the way down to the ground. Now, American scientists have drilled all the way through the polar ice cap in Greenland. Do you know what they found at the bottom under the ice in Greenland? No? Dead insects and leaf litter. Greenland used to be green. Hello? But... Evolutionists tell you in these coring projects of drilling down through the polar caps that every one of these little lines that you see in these uh, ice cores, uh, they represent a year, that they're just like the tree rings in a tree trunk, that you can count the lines and tell how old it is. And so they'll say, oh, over here it's 400,000 years old. Over there it's 800,000 years old. 
And when I was an evolutionist, I used to believe that. But I don't believe it anymore. Now, I realize that we do have one or two people in this room who can actually do this. But for the rest of you, in your mind, I'm going to ask you to come back with me to World War II. So just, just in your mind, uh, if you don't have the memory, uh, just come on back with me to World War II, okay? Because in 1942, two Boeing Liberator fighters, uh, excuse me, bombers, and uh, six Lockheed P-38 Lightning fighters took off from the United States to be a part of the war effort in Europe. But these planes cannot fly directly to England. They don't have the fuel capacity. We didn't have mid-air refueling in those days. And they cannot fly directly across the Atlantic. Now, if you cannot fly directly across the Atlantic, how do you do it? You fly around the Atlantic. You go to Bangor, Maine, and you fuel up. Then you go to Newfoundland. You go to the southwest corner of Greenland. You go to Iceland. And eventually, you will work your way to England. Are you with me? Now, these eight planes got to the southwest corner of Greenland. They fueled up. They started to fly east over the polar ice cap of Greenland, got out over the water on their way to Iceland, and they ran right smack into a white-out blizzard. Anybody here know what I mean by a white-out blizzard? Yeah, me too. Couldn't see the front end of the car, right? So they cannot land in Iceland because they can't find Iceland. So they have to turn back. Problem is, they don't have the fuel to get back. They have only two choices. They can land in the water, die in five minutes, a la Titanic. Or they can try to land on a glacier in Greenland. I'll bet you know which one they did, don't you? Yeah, they tried to land on the glacier. Now, the first plane went in with the wheels down. When it hit the ice, it flipped over. Now, any pilot will tell you that's a bad landing. The other seven planes went in with the wheels up. They just belly landed on the ice. It took nine days for the crews to be rescued. Every man was, was rescued. They didn't lose one. Uh, but the planes were simply left there because in 1942, it was much cheaper, much faster to just build new planes. And they were all damaged. And so they just left the planes there. But 46 years later, in 1988, some enterprising men from the state of Kentucky remembered that those planes were up there. Today, those planes are very valuable. There's a lot of money in antique military aircraft because there's so few of them. And so they decided to go up and get the planes, bring them back to the States, fix them up and so forth. It was just a good money-making venture, you know? So they went up to Greenland to get the planes. Now, they knew exactly where the planes had landed. And, um, well, it's only been 46 years. So let's think about this for a minute. Um, well, the evolutionists will tell you that these little lines in the ice represent a year. It's only been 46 years, correct? So how much ice and snow did they find on top of the plains when they got there? Well, the problem was, when they got there, they couldn't find the planes. So they came back and got ice-penetrating radar. They found the planes 250 to 270 feet below the surface. They had to come back and get equipment that would not drill a hole, but would melt a hole all the way down to the plains through the ice. When they got down there, they uh, found this Lockheed P-38. Um, this one was in such good condition. They disassembled her, brought her up the hole, brought her back to Kentucky, reassembled her, and today she's flying. Yeah. Yes, uh, I want you to think about this. Now, it had only taken 46 years for 250 feet of ice and snow to build on top of the plane. You see, the, the planes don't sink into the ice. Where they landed is where they stayed. But in only 46 years, 250 feet of ice and snow had built up on top of the planes. Now, that's an average of 5.4 foot per year. Now, the polar ice caps in Antarctica are roughly 3,000 meters deep, roughly 10,000 feet, two miles of ice in Antarctica. But all of that could occur in only 2,000 years at that rate of accumulation. And how many of you have lived up north or uh, some other place where they have plowed snow, not salted, but plowed snow? Anybody been around plowed snow? Right. 
Now, in, I grew up in California in the Sierra Mountains, and we plow, they still plow snow in the Sierras. Um, but in Russia, they don't have the money for salt. They plow everything. And um, let me just ask you a question. Those of you who have been where they plowed snow, after they plowed snow after a storm, all on the side of the roads, did it kind of look like that? But ladies and gentlemen, if you compress this, it looks just like the ice cores. Hello? You see, I don't think those little lines in the ice are individual years. I think those little lines in the ice are individual storms. And the evidence much better fits that. Now, I said that that plane was flying. Now, first of all, remember, when she was found, she looked like this. Um, however, I was speaking in Maine a few years ago, and uh, she's now called Glacier Girl. Uh, but Glacier Girl was actually visiting. I, I didn't know it till I got there and so forth, but the plane that you just saw today looks like that. I think she's just downright beautiful. <laughs> Hello? So tell me, does it take millions of years to get polar ice caps? Not a chance. And then, of course, we want to take a look at does radiometric dating prove that things are millions and billions of years old? Now, I might use a word occasionally that many of you might not be familiar with. When I do that, I will always define what the word means. So what is this word radiometric? What does that word mean? Well, it is the supposed use of the decay of radioactive materials to then supposedly measure the amount of time it has been since a creature lived or an event occurred. Radiometric, the supposed use of the decay of radioactive materials to supposedly determine how long it has been since an event occurred or a creature lived. And all of you are familiar with some of these, of course. The most common one taught in school is carbon-14. And I'm sure you're all at least basically familiar with the term carbon-14. But there are many other methods. There's potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium. There are other methods and so forth. What's the problem? None of them work. None of them work. You see, they all start with six fatal false assumptions, but carbon-14 has 20 fatal false assumptions. Please tell me, if you try to date something using six fatal false assumptions or 20 fatal false assumptions, how can you possibly get an accurate date? And all of you can sit here right now and think of at least one reason that none of them work. And I will tell you that any knowledgeable evolutionist knows they don't work. Now, there's lots of evolutionists and evolution teachers that will talk about them, but a knowledgeable evolutionist knows that they don't work. But think with me for a moment. Today, with modern technology, we can determine the amount of isotopes that are in a sample today. But we don't know what the starting conditions were. There's absolutely no way that you can tell me what was actually in the rock when the rock came into existence. You're making assumptions about it, but you have no proof. So if you only know the ending conditions, but you do not know the starting conditions, it's simply invalid. Is that correct? And all of them start with six fatal false assumptions, but carbon-14 has 20. But let's think biblically for just a moment. After all, we, we believe the Bible, correct? Come on, Pastor Bill's listening. <laughs> I said, we believe the Bible, right? Yes. That's better. Okay. Now, if you think biblically for just a moment, the flood of Noah would drastically change the carbon cycle on Earth, making all carbon-14 dates totally invalid. I would also point out that above-ground atomic bomb testing throws off all carbon-14 dates, too. There's lots of other problems with it. But let me ask you a question. Uh, if, if these things worked, if they worked, and you could use two different methods on the same rock, wouldn't you expect to get approximately the same age? Come on, folks, it's just a concept kind of a question here. If these things worked, uh, and you could use two different methods on the same rock, wouldn't you expect to get approximately the same result? Right? I mean, I'm not asking for perfection, but you would expect to get some close, right? I mean, after all, would you agree if we were, say, within 5%, uh, we would say that they appear to work? Okay, that was six people. Apparently, you all want to bargain. How, how about 10%? If they were within 10%, would you agree they appear to work? Yes. 
Okay, that's a lot of people, but I didn't still, I didn't get everybody. Okay, what do you want, 15%? If it was 15%, would you? Okay, apparently you already figured this out. You see, there are tremendous contradictions between two different methods used on the same rock. Now, I'm going to give you only three examples. Now, we have a whole program on 14. We have a whole program on potassium argon. But, but I just want to give you three examples. Now, this is Sunset Crater National Monument in eastern Arizona. Perhaps some of you have seen it. I know that some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. If you go up the east road to the Grand Canyon, the east end of the canyon, you pass right by here. Beautiful little spot. Well worth taking a few minutes to pull in. And uh, this is a small volcano, but the cinders at the top of the volcano here give it this color that at sunset it just glows. And so that's why it's called Sunset Crater, okay? Now, we know that this volcano erupted approximately 900 years ago. It's really not that hard to figure out 900 years. Um, but if you know anything about the southwestern part of the United States, you know there have been Native American Indians living there for thousands of years. At least 3,000, maybe 4,000 coming from the Tower of Babel. And so we know that, of course, there were Native American Indians in the southwest, and we know that there were Native American Indians here at the time of this particular eruption because in the lava flows and cinder cones from this eruption, we've actually found Native Indian artifacts trapped inside the cinder cones and lava flows. We know they were there, correct? Now, when you're dealing with volcanic materials, Evolutionists will tell you that you use the potassium argon method of testing. And so we collected some samples, sent them to a lab, paid them for the test, didn't tell them where they came from, and uh, they came back and told us how old the samples were. And they said that the samples were 210 to 230,000 uh, years old. Uh, for material we know is roughly 900. I think that's more than 15%. How about you? Or, this again is another piece of volcanic rock, in this particular case from Australia, but trapped inside the lava rock was a piece of wood here. What happened was, there, there are volcanoes along the east coast of Australia, and a volcano erupted, and the lava came down the side of the volcano, surrounding live trees, killing the live trees, but it also surrounded pieces of dead wood on the forest floor. And there's no possibility of contamination because... This piece of wood was completely trapped inside the rock, so there's no possibility of contamination. Now, the heat of the rock turned the wood into charcoal. And so this, of course, is carbon, right? And this is volcanic rock. So we can supposedly date the carbon using the carbon-14 method, and we would date the rock according to the potassium-argon method, according to evolutionists. Now, I do not, I do not agree with these dates. I hope you understand that. But we took samples, sent them away to labs, paid for the test, did not tell them where the samples came from. The lab who did the carbon-14 date on the charcoal came back with a date of 45,000 years old. I completely disagree with it, but that's what they, they gave us, okay? The lab that did the date testing potassium argon on the rock came back with a date of 44 million. I don't know about you, I think that's more than 15%. How about you? <laughs> and then I know some of you have been to Hawaii. Uh, this is 1801, tw you know, 220 years ago, uh, on the big island of Hawaii. As you know, there are many live volcanoes even today there. And uh, remember that the, the volcanoes of Hawaii, um, number one, there are volcanoes that stick out of the ocean. They come from the ocean floor, all the way out, sticking out of the ocean, correct? And the volcanoes of Hawaii are not known for massive explosive force. The Hawaiian Islands volcanoes are known for massive amounts of lava flow. They just produce massive magma flows. Now, let's think. This is a, a diagram of what we have coming out from the ocean floor here and up and out. And this is going to be, uh, well, this represents a Hawaiian Island volcano. And you'll also notice volcanoes underwater over here. Now, on the floor of the North Pacific, north of the equator, there are 20,000 underwater volcanoes. The Hawaiian Islands just happen to stick out of the water. And so 
this is going to represent our Hawaiian island. Now, I, I hope you know by now, I'm not a proud guy and so forth, but, but I would like you to at least appreciate the difficulty in making some of these slides for you. So in 1801, there was an eruption. <laughs> Apparently, most of you missed it. <laughs> the correct response was, ooh. So, in 1801, there was an eruption. Much better. But again, what happened? Massive amount of lava flow. It came out of the top of the volcano, all the way down the side of the volcano, into the Pacific Ocean, and all the way down the side of the volcano to the ocean floor, 2.6 miles down. A few years ago, we got this bright idea. We said, let's send a robot down the lava flow, because it's one continuous flow. You can just see it, you know. And, and let's take some samples where humans can't dive, and, uh, well, let's see what we get. And so we sent the robot down eight-tenths of a mile, took a sample, came back, and got a potassium-argon date of zero million years old. Now, technically, technically, I want you to know that's correct, because... You see, carbon-14 decays very, very quickly. It has a half-life of 5,730 years. By the way, if anybody ever tells you, you know, they've dated dinosaur fossils 65 million years old using carbon-14. I want you to look them right back in the eye and laugh hysterically. Come on, practice. <laughs> Somebody says that, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. You see, carbon-14 breaks down very quickly. The most sensitive scientific instrument we have on Earth today cannot measure carbon-14 ratios beyond 17 and one-half half-lives for your purpose tonight. That would be equivalent to 103,000 years. Carbon-14 goes to zero in 250 to 350,000 years. You can't possibly measure anything millions of years old with carbon-14. They simply don't know what they're talking about. The only thing carbon-14 is good for is proving the Earth is young. Did you hear me? Let me explain why. Carbon-14 is an excellent argument for a young Earth. We cannot find a coal deposit, an oil deposit, a natural gas deposit, a carbonaceous clay deposit on this earth that does not have significant measurable carbon-14. That means that all the coal, oil, natural gas, and carbonaceous clays on earth must be less than 100,000 years old. In fact, much less. But their story, of course, is that it's millions of years. Now, uh, potassium argon, though, is exactly the opposite. Potassium argon decays very very slowly. You cannot measure hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands using potassium argon. It's only good on millions. So if this material is only 220 years old, a potassium argon date of zero million is correct. I just, I, I just want you to know that's technically correct. And we said, okay, let's send it down a couple of miles. So we sent the robot down, came back, got a carbon, uh, big pardon, a potassium argon date of 12 million years old for material that we know is 220 years old. Well, we said that, that's interesting. Let's send it all the way down to the bottom. So we sent that robot down 2.6 miles, took a sample, came back and got a potassium argon date of 21 million years old for material that we know is 220 years old. Do you get the opinion? These things simply don't work. And we have tons of examples like that. We even found two mammoths buried in the ice in Alaska next to each other. We carbon-14 dated them, and guess what? They had died thousands of years apart. We found another mammoth buried in the ice in Alaska. We carbon-dated the flesh. We carbon-dated the skin. According to carbon-14, they had died thousands of years apart. Well, I don't know about you, but I think when your skin dies thousands of years before the rest of you, you've got a problem. <laughs> These things simply don't work. And let's talk about coal. Now, I don't know if any of you come from northern Michigan. Any of you here from northern Michigan? No hands? Okay. Well, just in case you were, this is a photograph from northern Michigan. But here we see a, a layer, about two, two and a half foot thick layer, 
a pure anthracite coal. Now, anthracite coal is the hardest, bestest coal there is. It's the really good stuff. Hello? Now, ladies and gentlemen, you only find coal, oil, natural gas between layers of sedimentary rock. Now, what is sedimentary rock? You may remember from school, sedimentary rock comes from the word sediment, but sedimentary rock is just dried out mud. See, I told you this stuff is really simple, you know? But you only find natural coal, natural oil, natural gas between layers of dried out mud. And, of course, you can see layers of dried out mud below and above. Those of you that were fortunate enough to get some of those fish fossils, take a look at all the little layers in those pieces of rock you just got. And those are sedimentary layers, dried out mud. But here's the problem. You see, anybody who knows anything about the formation of coal will tell you it takes 10-foot-thick layer of dead plant and wood material all in one place, all at one time, without decay, compressed to one foot thick to get anthracite coal. Now, if you compress it two, three to one, you get brown lignites. If you compress it five, six to one, you get medium-grade bituminous coals. But you've got to compress it 10 to one to get anthracite coal, the really good stuff. But here's the problem. Number one, you only find it between layers of dried out mud. Now, first of all, what should that tell you? What does layers of dried out mud above and below tell you? It tells you that this is the result of a flood. Yeah. And, and, out in the states of Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming, we have pure thick layers of anthracite coal, 200 and 300 foot thick. Now, that means that you would have to have had a layer 2,000 foot thick, 3,000 foot thick of dead plant and wood material all in one place, all at one time, without decay, and enough mud on top of that to compress it down to 200 to 300. I would suggest to you that only a worldwide flood could do that. And you, you find the most interesting things in coal. I mean, you really do find the most interesting things in coal. I'm just going to give you one example tonight. For instance, what about this dinner bell? Well, I call it a dinner bell. It's the size of a dinner bell. But this was found in 1944 in medium-grade coal in West Virginia. But the coal, according to evolutionists, is over 300 million years old. Anybody here got a problem with that? Now, the bell itself was made out of an extremely unique alloy, not used in modern uh, alloys. Um, and when you look inside the bell, it has an iron clapper inside. So the clapper is made out of iron, but the bell is a most unique alloy. Now, if something is a fact, I simply state it. If something is my personal opinion or speculation, I will always say so, okay? So what is the fact about this bell? It was used by a human before the flood, trapped in vegetative materials during the flood that turned into coal because of the flood, and we found it later. That's a fact. However, I'd like to speculate with you for just a moment. I want you to take a good, close look at the top of this bell. Now, I'm going to show you a close-up view. But I want to take a good, close-up look at the top of this bell. It looks like that. Now, this is my personal opinion. You form your own, okay? But based upon what I see here, I think that this bell was used in pagan worship before the flood. I can't prove it, but I think that's true. It's my opinion. But I don't speculate things uh, unless I have a good reason. You see, I speculate that because we have found similar shaped bells in Hindu deity worship and at Babylon. So I think my opinion is on good ground. And then, of course, I'm sure, well, we have to talk about fossils tonight. Now, again, I, I grew up on fossils. I cut my teeth on fossils, so to speak. And uh, they taught you in school that it takes millions and millions of years to get a fossil. Is that correct? Well, in this particular presentation tonight, I'm going to show you my third most favorite fossil. Now, if you want to see my first and second most, you know, uh, dear and near fossil, 
Uh, that's in our Dinomania presentation. That's called the teaser. But I'm going to show you our third, my third uh, most favorite fossil. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight I would like to introduce you to a fossil, Teddy Barasaurus. <laughs> now, this fossil, Teddy Barasaurus, fossilized in only four months. So please tell me, does it take millions of years to get a fossil? Not a chance. Would you like to see where this teddy bear was fossilized? That's three of you. How about the rest of you? Oh, oh, you would. Okay. I, otherwise, I was going to go on to something else. Um, well, let's take a look at where was this teddy bear fossilized. Well, take a look. This is called the dripping or dropping well in Yorkshire. It's on the River Nid. Now, Yorkshire is the northeast corner of England right against Scotland. And, uh, well, what do we have here? Up on top, there's a mineral spring, and mineral water flows over the edge here, along the edge of the river, uh, but the mineral water flows down over here. The water evaporates, and leaving the mineral here as a sort of a stone waterfall. But the color you see here is the algae growing in the water, right? So what they've done is they've put hooks down here along the bottom in a line, and people come along, and they hook things up here. They come back four months later, and they're fossilized. Now, let's just see how many teddy bears were being fossilized at the time that this photograph was taken, okay? So let's just count together, all right? So we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 teddy bears being fossilized at the time that this photograph was taken. In addition to which, we have a bell, a woman's purse, a teapot, a hat, another hat, a sausage, <laughs> and another bell. And if any of you can explain this to me, I genuinely would appreciate you filling me in because I've never figured this one out. A plastic lobster. <laughs> Why would you want to fossilize a plastic lobster? I mean, isn't stiff enough as it is? Yeah. But, but I'm not finished. That takes four months to get a fossil. What about this man-made piece of rope? This comes from the Czech Republic, so you might even be able to read it. It says Czech Republic right there. This is a coil of man-made rope that fossilized in only two weeks. So is fossilization a rapid or a slow process? Oh, it's a rapid process. As a matter of fact, it cannot possibly be slow if you understand what occurs in the fossilization process. Now, knowing where we are right now, and, and I was born and grew up on the water too, you know, in San Francisco, in Berkeley, and so forth. Got some great seafood around here, is that right? Now, I'm not going to call on anybody here. I, I want to assure you that. But I would like to just see some hands. How many fishermen, fisherwomen, do we have in the room? I'm not going to call on you. Just how many would like to fish? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, about, thank you. It's about a dozen, maybe 14. Now, I'm not going to call on you, but you guys who just raised your hand are going to be my expert witnesses, okay? Okay? Now, would you agree this is a fossil fish? Looks a little bit like those uh, fossil fish that were being handed out, doesn't it? It's not from the same location, however, but based upon this particular fossil fish and others like it, based upon the condition of it, an evolutionary believing paleontologist made an honest observation. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when an evolutionist makes an honest, valid, scientific observation, I want to compliment him. And I compliment this particular evolutionist. I'm sincere. Because he didn't let his religion get in the way of a good scientific observation. He said, based upon the condition of this fish, it had fossilized in five hours or less. I mentioned that I do mission work in Brazil. I was in Brazil 16 straight years until this past year COVID prevented it. But this comes from the Santana Formation in Brazil. We found fossil gills, fossil muscles, fossil stomachs. The evolutionist wrote in his report, and I quote, What is clear is that the fossilization process took place moments after the fish died and was completed with only a few, probably less than five hours, unquote. However, this evolutionist went on to write in his report, quote, 
In this case, instantaneous fossilization is suspected to have been the very cause of death. Apparently, some of you didn't quite hear that. He just said, he just said this fish was DOA, fossil. Please tell me, if you can die from fossilization, is it a rapid or a slow process? It's a rapid process. It cannot be slow. And I'm sure that all of you have noticed, too, that the moon is moving away, correct? Y'all haven't noticed the moon is moving away? Where are your powers of observation, folks? The moon is moving away at a staggeringly fast rate. Are you ready to be staggered? You know, y'all are not convincing. I said, are you ready to be staggered? Yes. Oh, that's better. The moon is moving away from the earth at a staggeringly faster. I cannot believe you hadn't noticed. It's moving away at an inch and a half a year. And you hadn't you had noticed. Oh, my goodness. Now, that may seem silly. I, I, I agree. An inch and a half a year sounds silly. But what you don't realize is it's incredibly important. It's staggeringly fast. Think with me for just a moment. If God created the earth, sun, moon, and so forth 6,000 years ago, that means that the moon has only moved away 9,000 inches. That's only 750 feet, which is not a whole lot in 239,000 miles, you must admit. But how many of you remember something called the law of gravity? Oh, come on, folks. You all remember the law of gravity. Look, I'm not asking if you remember the formula, okay? But you all remember the law of gravity, right? And it says that the closer two objects are, the greater the force pulling them together. It's the universal force that holds the universe together, correct? Now, you do not have to believe me. You can prove this for yourself. All you need is a laptop computer. I'm not so sure there are some tablets and phones that wouldn't make this calculation. You put the formula for the law of gravity into that device. You put the mass of the moon, the mass of this Earth, you put the distance 239,000, the average distance away, hit enter and go back in time and see what happens. Think with me. It's moving away at an inch and a half a year now, right? But if I go back one year, it's going to be an inch and a half closer, correct? But as I start to go back hundreds of years, what's going to happen? Well, as it starts to go back, the force of gravity is going to increase. Gravity is an inverse square law. You half the distance, you quadruple the force. And so just put it in a laptop computer. Hit enter and go back in time and see what happens. Because, well, if you go back, it starts coming back at a foot a year. Then the moon starts coming back at a mile a year. Are you all with me? You only have to go back 1.4 billion years, and the moon will be touching the Earth. Perhaps you don't quite get it. Uh, see, evolution say the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, but, but the moon would have been touching the Earth only 1.4 billion years ago, which means the moon must have been touching the Earth for the first 3.4 billion years, correct? And, and then it's been moving away ever since, right? Right? No? Mm, not a chance. Thank you very much. And there's something else. It's called the Roche distance, R-O-C-H-E, distance. It's 11,500 miles. If the moon had ever been that close, the force of gravity would have broken the moon into pieces and we'd have a ring and not a moon. The moon could never have been touching the earth and the moon can never have been really close to the earth either. Hello? Well, this is again another good argument. And what is the... Now, come on, folks. Think about where we are here. What is the primary physical impact of the moon upon the earth? Tides, come on. So let's think about this. Tides. The moon is held in orbit around the Earth by a force equal to 22 quadrillion tons of force. You got 22 quadrillion tons of force, you can move a lot of water, right? And so it's tides. So let's think. If we were to go back in time, well, the gravity would increase and the tides would get higher and higher as the moon got closer and closer, correct? Again, you only need a laptop computer to prove this, folks. You only have to go back one half billion years, and the tide would rise a mile high twice a day. How high is your place above sea level here? 
kind of begs the question, do you know how to breathe underwater? But, but there's one more we have to talk about tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, does it take millions, billions of years for light to travel from distant places in the universe to get here? Now, there is only one thing that you have to get over to understand what I'm about to say. The one thing you have to get over, the one hurdle you must get over is this. A light year is not a time. A light year is a distance. Did you hear that? It's the one hurdle you have to get over. A light year is not a time. A light year is a distance. A light year is the distance that light travels at the current speed of light as measured on Earth today in one year, roughly 5.8 trillion miles. Now, how many of you were taught in school, as I was, that the speed of light is a constant? Come on, 186,000 miles per second, 330,000 kilometers per second, and they said it's a constant. And, of course, evolutionists say if something is 13.82 billion light years away, it must be 13.82 billion years old, right? Here's the problem. The speed of light is not a constant in nature. Ladies and gentlemen, do you have any idea how long we have actually known the speed of light? Many of you may think it's only been about 100 years. Maybe you go back to the experiments of Michelson or something like that, and many people think we've only been able to measure the speed of light for perhaps 100 years. It is not true. We have known the speed of light since 1676 when Romer measured it accurately. Now, our numbers have become more refined since then, but he had a very good number on the speed of light. And it's interesting that since that time, we can measure the speed of light slowing down. Think with me for just a moment. The second law of thermodynamics, the law of universal decay of all systems, well, it applies to biological and physical systems. Please tell me, that being true, why should light be exempt? You see, light is not exempt from the second law. And over time, the speed of light has been slowing down. We've measured it. If you'd like a really good article on this, it's not that difficult to read. There's one on my website. It's not that technical, I assure you. But light is not a constant in nature. We have actually seen it, measured it, slowing down. And I'd like to introduce you to a gentleman right here. His name is Dr. Vladimir Sergeyevich Trotsky. Yes, he's a Russian scientist. He's an astronomical physicist. Um, this is my headquarters when I am in Russia, is Nizhny Novgorod, 320 miles due east out of Moscow on the banks of the Volga River. It's an ancient university city. My daughter attended the university there for two years. It's a beautiful place in the summertime. <clears throat> but uh, he is not a creationist. He's not one of us. But again, based on good scientific data, he says that at one time in the past, the speed of light was 10 million times faster than today. Do the math. If light was traveling 10 million times faster at some point in the past, it would go across the entire universe in a matter of thousands of years. Is that correct? And then I said, light is not a constant. I want to prove it to you. I want to introduce you to some evolutionary-believing uh, astronomers and astrophysicists headed by Dr. Hall. Um, twice, twice they have reported stopping light and starting it again. The last time, December 4, 2009, they claimed to have stopped light for one and one-half seconds. I realize one and one-half seconds doesn't seem like much to you, but you don't realize the impact. You see, think with me. In one and one-half seconds, light will travel around the circumference of the Earth ten times. If you can stop light for a second and a half, you have genuinely accomplished something near miraculous. Are you with me? I've read the papers. I disagree with the use of the word stop. I'm only quoting what they said, but they claim on two occasions to have done it. But they slowed dial light down to the place it was traveling at 35 miles an hour. You could see it go down the street like a car. 
And on two occasions, they said they stopped it and started it again. I, again, I disagree with the use of the word stop there, but it's irrelevant. Please tell me, if you can slow it down, whether you can stop it or not, that means you can manipulate it. Is that correct? And if you can manipulate it, it's not a constant. So lots of things. These are just some of the simple things that tell us that scientifically the Earth, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe are in fact young. But we have many other things. Too much dust in the solar system. The, the sun writes, rotates too fast. We have lumpy rings around planets. Uh, all kinds of things. Barred spiral galaxies across the universe in every direction tell us that they have to be young. Now, Pastor Bill likes one in particular. I thought I might talk about it because he loves it. Um, there's too much salt in the oceans. The oceans today average 3.5% salt, but at the current rates at which salt is accumulating. Now, salt goes into the ocean and salt comes out. Salt does come out of the ocean. Most of it goes right back in again, but some of it comes out. But there's a net gain of almost a half a billion tons of salt per year in the Earth's oceans. Now, to get 3.5% salt in the Earth's oceans today, well, you'd only need 42 to 62 million years, but evolutionists say the oceans are billions of years old. Is that correct? It's simply not possible. Think about it for just a moment. How many of you, well, maybe have had fish in a tank, how many of you believe that fish will actually swim in distilled water? Come on, folks, think about it. Evolutionists say that all life on Earth evolved from rocks into single-celled organisms, that they eventually became fish. And they say that the, uh, well, the time of the fish uh, being dominant on the Earth, the Silurian period, was 360 to 410 million, suppose, years ago. That's the age of fishes, according to evolutionists. But please tell me, if the age of fishes was, uh, well, 360 to 410 million, suppose, years ago, but it would only take 42 to 62 million years to get all the salt in the oceans today, can they possibly be telling us the truth? See, you forgot your line. Can they possibly be telling us the truth? Not a chance. Don't ever let them deceive you, your children, your grandchildren, or your great-grandchildren again. Amen? If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.